Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, Christmas hymns year-round Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Post-Thanksgiving Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Post-Thanksgiving Swingle? Because it's a crime against humanity to sing Christmas carols in January or February <laughs> or or even November pre-Thanksgiving. And I, I don't understand what has gotten into you that you would misbehave to this level. Now, I, I will immediately uh, admit my hypocrisy here because uh, in, in our personal devotions in my family, we have... Uh, this year, we have perhaps cheated a bit and, and may have started singing Christmas carols in like November or 18th or somewhere around there. Yeah, but that's um, practically Thanksgiving. I'm talking it's, it's about like enough. singing. <laughs> I'm talking about singing Christmas hymns in like May. Yeah, and that's like a, a I think a war crime. Like I, <laughs> I don't know. That's like that's deeply offensive to me, and I think you should repent and believe in the gospel. <laughs> the gospel of Christmas hymns after Thanksgiving. So give an account for yourself. Let's hear it. Why is this okay with you? Oh, just that Christmas songs, Christmas like uh, hymns are usually really, really great. Uh, And, you know, they uh, have a great focus on the incarnation. And uh, I think the incarnation is something that we should be thinking about and remembering uh, year round. And so like what's what's wrong with uh, bringing in a little bit of like of the father's love begotten in like May? Is that, that's a, it's a great song and you know it's it's got all of the right kind of like beats and focuses you know on on the incarnation and the work of christ and uh you know just because it happens to be a christmas song doesn't mean we can like only sing it you know for four weeks out of the year or something like that so i'm like i'm not saying that we should be like busting out hark the herald or you know something like that necessarily but just that like if I'm going to sing we three kings in may i think that's okay i think it's just it's just a good song Okay, now I'm confused because I thought you were making a distinction there between like songs that are about the incarnation, but but maybe more theological. They're not about the Christmas story as much. And so perhaps like we could sing one of those year round, which I would agree with that. There's some gray area. Is it a Christmas song or not? But then you brought up We Three Kings, which is like. I don't really even know how it gets more Christmas even. (laughs) That's literally just like the Christmas story. It's true, and it's one of the few actual <laughs> Christmas songs, not Advent songs. You know, uh, well, I guess, I guess there's a lot of uh, I guess there's a lot of Christmas songs, but like legit, full on in Christmas Christmas songs, not just like Birth of Jesus kind of deals. You know, but I would say because like I mean, most of most of the content of We Three Kings isn't really strictly biblical. Um, I mean, it, it's mostly it's mostly theological um, in nature, where you know something sure, like the yeah. first there Noel, weren't even three kings. I mean, we we debunked this all last year, didn't? Yes, we? yes, it's true. <laughs> and and, and I, I guess I would say I'll back off of Hark the Herald. I, I I said that, but what I was really thinking in my head was the first Noel. Um, oh, that's just because you hate that song. <laughs> well, okay, that's yes, the, it's, it's true. You don't want it to even be busted out in December. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's that's true. It's just a bad song, but. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remain unconvinced and I'm ashamed to be associated with you. But nevertheless, um, let's talk for a while about Romans 13. <laughs> yes, that's right. So to our listening audience, we were finally tackling probably 
like the verse or, or one of the two big verses. There's another one in, uh, is it first or second Peter? I can't even remember off the top of my head. Uh, the first but, Peter two, you're talking about the fear God, honor the King. Yes. Yeah. That one where it's like, so Romans 13 is like one of the, the, the two big passages that if you're talking about like, Oh, politics in the Bible, it's like, ah, Romans 13. That's, that's like, that's the, that's the verse. That's the thing that you deal with there. And so, you know, it's taken us two and a half um, episodes uh, talking about uh, uh, theology and politics before we finally gotten there, but we're finally here. Episode full fledged episode three of our series on theology and politics. And we're tackling Romans 13 today. Yeah, the passage in which we learn that we have to obey Hitler no matter what he says, right? That's the... That's clearly true, the, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's it's. I'm just... That's just what Paul says, right? You know, don't yeah, you believe the Bible? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I that's mean, true. There, there's well, definitely... So there's definitely an element of Romans 13 where it, it seems like nobody actually... Nobody actually believes that Romans 13 means you should do whatever the government says, right? Nobody believes that. People well, say that as a club to wield against people who are disobeying government laws they they like, right? Uh, like, you know, Romans 13, uh, obey the law, right? But sure, I don't think well, anyone actually believes that. It's true. Well, it, it sounds like you're getting into some misconceptions here a little bit, Jeremy. So <laughs> okay. maybe before, before we gun. get... It's true, but uh, I want you to circle back to that one in just a second. But first, how about you read us our our verse in particular? This is, you know, Romans 13, verse 1. Yes, all right. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, I mean, there it is. It's it's pretty clear. We're we're to be subject to governing authorities. So, you know, if the government says it, you got to be subject to it, right? I mean, that's that's how it works, and that's what Paul is saying here, right? And the passage goes on from there. We'll co cover the whole section, uh, but it goes on to say, you know, uh, if you would have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is right, and you will receive his approval, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the avenger of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is even more strong language, basically saying, don't just be subject, but like, if you're not, you're subject to wrath. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's and there's another verse that says, you know, the one who resists authority is resisting what God has appointed. So it's like, right? I mean, it's it, Paul is not, not mincing words in, yeah. in this section. That's for sure. Yeah, so you better obey Hitler or you're disobeying God, right? Right, yes. And I, and I think that that is, that's probably the misconception that <laughs> I think we really want to... supposed to say wanna... right. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. It's... That could be taken out of context. You could get canceled for that, man. Oh, I mean, there's so many other things that I could be more easily canceled for that aren't out of context that I'm, I'm not worried <laughs> okay. about it. Fair um, enough. <laughs> um, but, but I'd say, it's, you know, getting into the misconceptions a little bit, I think that's 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 the piece right there is the the main misconception that uh, uh like i think we see from this passage is that people will say that this is just some kind of like carte blanche authority that's being given to governments to where they can kind of just basically do whatever they want and you have to listen to what they say um and you know and kind of what you're saying jeremy is that like even though people say things like that or that's kind of the the core nugget of the argument that they're trying to make of 
oh, you know, you Christian person, you have to obey this law or you have to obey this command that a government has given to you because Romans 13. And so kind of the nugget of the argument that they're making is Romans 13 just means you have to always obey the government. But they, I mean, I don't think you're like what you're saying. Nobody really actually thinks that because, you know, you can just immediately bring up some very clear counterexample of like Hitler. I mean, I, I think it would be, you know, even though... I'm pretty sure there were Lutheran ministers in, you know, the 1920s or 1930s, 1920s. There 100 percent were were Lutheran ministers who were, you know, SS members, <laughs> yeah, and, whatever, you know, who and were saying use Romans passages 13. like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to say, you know, you, you have to you have to obey what the party says. Right. You know, and so even though, you know, they're using that, I guess I, I guess maybe what I would say is there are people who do mean that, like who do interpret Romans 13 to mean you should always do what the government says. But I think most people uh, realize that that is just manifestly untrue in extreme cases. Well, so so then you get the more nuanced position. And by the way, I have to point out John's don't tread on me mug since it's very uh, apropos to our episode and he keeps brandishing it. It's um, true. I'm drinking my, my nice peppermint tea here. So we'll, 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 we'll get back to this flag at the end of the episode, I hope. <laughs> All right. So... So that being said, uh, I think there's the more nuanced position, and this is what you'll hear from kind of the, uh, man, we've been so hardcore on these these people lately, like the big Eva <laughs> leaders, right? Big evangelicalism, the people who are invited to the conferences and write the yeah, we, crossway we, books and stuff like that, right? We've been hard on them, but I think it's because they deserve it. Right. Yes. Yes. So, So the more nuanced position you'll get is like, well, okay, obviously we have tons of counterexamples like of civil disobedience in the Bible, you have the apostles saying, hey, we don't care what you say, we're going to preach the gospel anyways, and throw us in prison if you want, right? And so, you know, someone who has a broader concept of the Bible, <clears throat> but maybe still has kind of a a statist view of reality, or, or like a Romans 13 means you ought to obey um, sort of thing, would say, well, obviously, we don't have to obey the government if it contradicts God, but if it doesn't contradict God, we have to obey it, right? And then once again, though, that quickly falls apart as soon as we start thinking about it a little more. So, okay, if the government says you have to balance a dozen eggs on your head every time you leave your house um, and you have to do that the entire time you're away from your house or you'll be fined $30,000. And if you drop the eggs, you'll be fined $50,000, right? And you got to balance this cart carton of dozen eggs um and you just have to do it why because we said so okay well that's not contradictory to anything in the bible like you know there's nothing sinful about balancing a dozen eggs on your head you can go to church and worship god balancing a dozen eggs on your head <laughs> right so yeah. it's like okay so what do we mean by this whole like okay until they tell us to sin uh we obey no matter what um no that's idiotic. Like that doesn't make like, no matter what they say, are you sure? And if the dozen eggs example sounds crazy, I mean, uh, not to get too down, down the rabbit trail here, but the government has inflicted all sorts of ridiculous non-scientific measures on the people for the last 21 months that you can't point to a single statistic that demonstrates their efficacy. Like, so why are we doing this? It's about as pointless as putting a dozen eggs on your head. Right. And this, don't worry, this episode's not going to be all about, 
the, the coronavirus, right? Uh, just pointing out well, that the government I don't know, can... Jeremy. I'm the one who wrote the episode. Maybe it is. <laughs> okay. But my point being that, that if the government dictates arbitrary things, there has to be some point at which we say, even though that's not explicitly sinful, it's idiotic, right? And so we need to have some sort of theory for, for dealing with that. Anyways, that's my way of previewing that where we're going with this is that Romans 13 does not actually say you always need to obey the government until it comes in conflict with scripture. Um, but that being said, Romans 13 also does challenge us as libertarians, since we've made that clear mm -hmm. in the series. There's definitely things in this passage that I don't like that I know are what Paul is saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so so there's, that's not to say that this, this passage is like, you know, a anarchist creed or anything like that, right? Um, <clears throat> just that we need to have a balanced perspective, I think. So that's where we're going with this. That's my, I think that's the more nuanced okay. misconception that we're going to tear apart. Uh, but then maybe also there's a little bit of a, of a too much in the other direction, like radical libertarian approach to Romans 13. That's also a misconception perhaps. So, yes. Yeah. I think, I think there's a corrective that, that we need to hear from this passage and uh, very, very you know, true. I, I think we'll, I think we'll get into that in just a little bit here. Um, but yeah, maybe as a way of transition there, Jeremy, why don't we uh, uh, jump into the text and start uh, kind of doing our usual thing of looking at the context and seeing uh, uh, you know, what, how we can bring that to bear to make sense of what Paul is really telling us in this passage here. So, um, the text, I've, that sounds like the meat. Yeah. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. Is that what it's time for? It's time for the meat. <laughs> I love how you can never do that without giggling. I can't, That's, I can't, yeah. it just, I can't take it seriously. <laughs> Yeah, one of these days we'll get like a you know the sound effects back in. Uh, you know now now that we're not doing a lot of. Uh... Oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, Jeremy, you can just do our fully work for us there. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> All right. So so lay it on us. What's the context here? All right. So we have um uh, uh you know come to Romans thirteen one and uh, uh you know for those who know how numbering in the bible works that means that there is an entire chapter and in fact 12 entire chapters that come before romans 13 1 uh that um, i'm going to argue are going to have something to say about uh what romans 13 really means in in its context and so in this case we um I, we've, we've talked an awful lot about the book of romans in the past particularly in our our series on the romans road and so I don't think we're going to do maybe too much rehashing of that, except to say that most of what we talked about in those episodes was about the first half of the book of Romans. So that's kind of Romans 1 through about 11-ish is sort of one major chunk of the book of Romans. But, you know, Romans 12 and onward, including Romans 13, is in this sort of second half of the book of Romans. Uh, and there's been a little bit of a change in tone maybe would be a way that i put would put it uh that paul is taking so uh you know jeremy do you want to do you want to maybe talk to us a little bit about uh romans and the you know the way that it's divided into sure yeah yeah i mean the basic gist of it is romans 1 through 11 sort of comprises this extended theological argument and we've gone through the ins and outs of some of the more prominent well-known verses of course as you mentioned um, and then, I mean, you've got like the intro to the letter, of course, but then around, I think it's 118, the, the meaty section from 118 to the end of chapter 11 begins. 
and uh, obviously, you know, it deals with Jews and Gentiles, salvation and all that stuff. And then verse one of chapter 12 turns it from a theological uh, letter to a very ethical letter. He And he says, therefore, um, you know, uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, um, you know, offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So he he switches the topic from, okay, since all this crazy stuff that blows people's minds happens for 11 chapters, since all that cool stuff happened, um, now what? what? What do we do in response? And Paul's response is essentially uh, obey God and live an ethical life, love one another, and be a good citizen, chapter 13, what we're getting into today. Um, and uh, consider one another in love, consider the weaker brother, um, and lastly, worship God, give glory to God, right? Um, and so there's there's various little components to chapters 12 through through to the end of the letter when Paul does his greetings, uh, various ethical things, you know? And by ethics here, I just mean like, how do we live in the real world, right? Uh, what, is, what is being a Christian and being a, a good neighbor, uh, what does that entail to love God and love people? And so it's basically five chapters or really four chapters because chapter 16 is, like I said, the ending. So we got four whole chapters here just about that. And uh, we're right in the middle of it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, totally. And and um, the way that Paul is kind of doing these like basically application points of, you know, here's all your theology and now here is how that it sh- should impact your life in, in the second half of the book is uh, particularly in the end of Romans 12, which is kind of the immediate context before we get to Romans 13, uh, Paul does a series of exhortations to the believers in Rome. Um, So an exhortation is basically just kind of like a short little tidbit of, hey, you know, do this kind of thing or don't do that kind of thing. There's they're kind of these general principles that you could live by. It's like an Um, encouragement and a command at the same time. (laughs) Yes, yes, totally. Uh, and so, you know, to, to get a sense of what we're talking about, I'm going to start reading here in Romans. We're going to pick up in verse 9, um, and then I'll just kind of read for a little bit, just so you can kind of get a sense of what the the, the context sounds like. So, uh, picking up in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I'll, I'll kind of pause there for the for the time being. There's a little bit more that we'll get into in a second, but hopefully that gives you a sense of it. It's a bunch of these kind of small phrases of do this kind of thing, do that kind of thing, rejoice in hope, be constant in prayer, you know, bless and do not curse and, and kind of ideas like that. And so, and, and the thing that I'll point out is the way that this section begins, uh, uh, Paul actually kind of uses this as a little bit of a... Um, I would say maybe a thesis statement or kind of a, a theme for what the all of the exhortations that he's about to give us looks like. So it begins with this, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So it's kind of this idea of like cling to the good and reject the evil or cling to the good and hate the evil is, is sort of the idea. 
And if you read through this section, and, and I encourage the audience to to do this sometime, but like, you know, read through the end of Romans 12 and just take a look at kind of what all of these commands are and see that they really do kind of fall into these categories of, you know, hold tightly to this good thing. You know, the idea is that it's, it's you know, not not easy to be good, um, uh, you know, or, or to do these good things. You have to like really work at it and that you should be, you know, setting yourself against the easier or maybe more kind of like natural to yourself evil things. Um, you know, so one example of this would be, you know, bless and do not curse. Um, uh, let me actually see which. Uh, Don't do the evil thing. Do the good thing. Yes, yeah, bl <laughs> yeah, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, you know, exactly, so it's like, you know, if someone persecutes you, it's easy to curse them, if like, ah, oh, that, you know, terrible person, you know, that's the easy thing, but it's also the evil thing to do, so set yourself against that, and instead, you know, cling to the bless, you need the blessing, it's hard to bless people who persecute you, but it's definitely the good thing to do, and so, you know, hold tightly to that. Um, and so that, that's kind of the main sort of idea of, of what we're seeing right here in the context of Romans 12. Um, and again, I think we're probably going to maybe jump through a little bit of these because there's a, a lot that's going on in here. And in fact, you have probably heard on the, the, the preface episode that we did here of, uh, you know, uh, uh, episode two and a half of our, you know, politics, where I actually, it, a sermon that I gave on Romans 12, where I really kind of go through a lot of these pieces and, and talk about it more, um, more deeply. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if, uh, you know, there's something that you're interested in there. Um, but the, 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 the exhortations that I really kind of want us to focus on uh, come near the end, where, uh, uh, near the end of this section. So in particular, it says, um, uh, so I'll pick up in verse uh, uh, verse 17 here. So it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the thing that I want to highlight for you is there's a couple of these exhortations that Paul's focusing on that are really specifically about vengeance, where, you know, he says, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, repay no one evil for evil. So, you know, it's this idea of, uh, you know, don't don't take um, like petty vengeance on people who have done wrong to you. So if someone does something uh, evil to you, don't pay them back with evil. Um, you know, it says, but give thought to what's honorable in the sight of all. So it's, it's sort of this idea of like conduct yourself above reproach. You know, don't get people back when they do something wrong to you. Um, and, and in fact, this is actually kind of connected with what we were talking about in episode two of the, the podcast of Lex Talionis, where the, the idea you mean episode of two of the series. That we're doing right <laughs> apologies yes episode two of the series uh on lex talionis where it's this idea that the law is to pay back um people for you know in in kind for the 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 wrong things that they do as a form of punishment and that's sort of specifically instituted so that um 
uh, like there aren't these like cycles of revenge that happen. So it's not someone does something wrong to you. And so you pay them back and then they pay you back and then you pay them back. And then all of a sudden, you know, both of your families are dead or something horrible like that. It's rather, you know, you know, the governing authority steps in and says like, okay, you know, this person has done something wrong. And so, you know, we'll go to a judge and they will, you know, rule on our case. And, uh, you know, there, there will be some kind of like equal recompense that happens. And it's specifically to stop this kind of like paying back evil for evil. So kind of tying things in with what we've talked about before. So like as individuals, so this is one of those places where someone might disagree with the point we were making in the last um two episodes ago because we had donald on last time so two episodes ago when we talked about this this law of you know executing murderers right they might point to this repay no one evil for evil it's like well yeah as an individual yeah we don't seek vengeance on people but individual ethics is not the same thing as what the state ought to do Right. <laughs> totally. And and, yeah. and I would say specifically, it's it's particular what Paul says, don't pay back evil for evil, which is not not quite the same thing as having <laughs> there be equal recompense for for something. You know, it, we would argue that justice is something that's good. And so having someone who has done something evil being paid back with justice, that's not paying them back with evil necessarily. But mm, but yeah. I, I think that you do bring up a good point And and this is actually related to there are there are plenty of other places in the New Testament where this same kind of idea comes in. I'm thinking of uh, especially of like the Sermon on the Mount of, you know, if someone strikes your cheek, turn the other cheek. Also, you know, this idea that you shouldn't be retaliating against somebody. Um, and, and so so I, I think that that is an important point that you bring up. But what I would say is that looking at the the context of, of who these commands are being given to. They are specifically the individuals in the church community. So, you know, it is, uh, it's things like, um, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, um, you know, is, is one of the other exhortations. And I, I think it'd be kind of silly to have that be like, we should declare states of rejoicing for the whole community <laughs> if, you know, someone is rejoicing. It's like, no, no, it, it's, it's very clearly saying if someone close to you is weeping or rejoicing, that you should be sympathetic to them in the place where they're at. Or, you know, similarly, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's like, th those are both very obviously like things that I as a person do. You know, I am contributing to the needs or I am showing hospitality to someone. And so Presumably similarly, the church has, you know, some sort of fund, like it mentions in, in one of the letters to Timothy, like for widows, right? Yes, totally. So it's like some there's a structure and a institution that is doing something already and you contribute to those needs, right? I mean, it, right. it can also just be an individual basis, right? But like there's ways to do that that involve participation in institutions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um but that the sorry i'm kind of like interrupting you with all these ideas that no, no <laughs> worries. Gonna, but it's like you know i'm, I'm trying to bring because this is what we're doing in this episode is bridging the individual and the state yes. in terms of you know so that's like what's on my mind i don't mean to keep interrupting no no please this is this is great jeremy i'm really enjoying this uh <laughs> um and 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 i think the, the thing that i would point out also is I, I don't think there's any way that this could mean, you know, you know, when it says repay no one evil for evil, there's no way that that could mean that, oh, we should never like have any kind of like community retaliation against people who do wrong. Because Paul in like six verses is about to say that that, 
you know, governing authorities are God's appointed, like, avenger to bring about his wrath against wrongdoers. So, right. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't think that that's quite what Paul can mean in this verse. And so I, I think a more reasonable interpretation is that it's about our own petty vengeance, that I is a, you know, you know, I shouldn't just be going out guns blazing to avenge myself, which is, in fact, what Paul says then in the next verse. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. This is sort of the, the second exhortation that he gives us that's about vengeance here. And again, I would say the emphasis is is very clearly on personal retaliation. It's like, don't avenge yourself. Um but then he goes on to say, like, leave it to the wrath of God. So, you know, again, looping it in that there, there is some kind of repayment or wrath or punishment that comes on wrongdoing, but it shouldn't be something that you as an individual are just enacting yourself. Um, it, it, it's very interesting also what I'll point out is this phrase that says, leave it to the wrath of God. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that kind of sticks out to me a little bit, this, uh, this idea that, you know, avenge not yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Um, I, I think maybe some of the other trends, I think the ESV struggles a little bit in, in making it clear what's actually going on in this verse. If you look at some other translations, um, particularly the, um, I'm thinking of like the NASB or the NIV or the, uh, NRSV or, you know, some of these ones, they translated of like, leave room for the wrath of God or like the new English translation, uh, uh translates it like gives space to the wrath of God or gives space for the wrath of God. And I, so I, I think the kind of the picture here is that it, it's almost like there is this finite space in which, or this like finite bucket that wrongdoing creates where it's like, it can be filled up with wrath. Like there's, there's a, like a quantity of wrath that exists for wrongdoing. And it's like, either it can be filled up with our personal wrath, like, you know, our, us avenging ourselves or it can be filled up with this, this quote, wrath of God. But that if we are like avenging ourselves, there's a sense in which we kind of like fill up that quota. And then there's like no space left for, for God's wrath to be, you know, poured out on this, on this wrongdoing. And as we are about to launch into <laughs> that wrath can be meted out by the governing authorities. That can be how it's poured out. <laughs> <laughs> yes 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 and which is crazy so like it's super related you know everybody kind of like this is one of those chapter breaks that everyone's like oh now paul's talking about the government for no reason you know and it's like no it's actually completely related to what he was just talking about like yes yeah no totally totally <laughs> um i'd say maybe an example of this that we could maybe get our hands on of you know one of them or this idea of like you know personal vengeance not leaving room for the wrath of god is, uh, again, one of the things we talked about uh, in our second uh, episode on politics, uh, when we were talking about the Avenger of Blood, who, uh, you know, is, is chasing down. So, you know, the, the, we, we use the example of there's a, you know, uh, uh, you know Bob uh, accidentally kills his friend Frank. I'm, I'm making up new names here. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, then, then Frank's brother is the, you know, is going to chase him down and try to kill him back. And so, fr uh, so Frank runs to, or no, Bob, <laughs> I'm so terrible at this with the names. <laughs> Bob kills Frank. Frank's brother is now trying to kill Bob. So Bob runs to the cities of refuge. So hopefully this is, this is, people are remembering this one because it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, and, and one of the things that it talks about is, you know, you know, you need to make sure that the cities of refuge are close together. 
um, so that, you know, Bob doesn't get overtaken by Frank's brother on the road and having, you know, Frank's brother then kill him. Uh, and, and because in that case, like Frank's brother then is guilty of, of murdering Bob that like, you know, there, there should have been a trial. There should have been, you know, examination of the evidence to see if Bob had actually murdered Frank or if it was just manslaughter. And, and again, we kind of talked about this in the previous episode. Um, but I think this is actually an example of it not being left to the wrath of God that because Frank's brother is, you know, you know, avenging Frank in this case, it, it, it sort of like uses up the opportunity for, for Bob to actually be justly tried and to be, you know, convicted and then, um, uh, you know, to have capital punishment, uh, you know, executed on him in a like righteous way that the law talks about. Um, and, and so I don't know. Do, do you buy that, Jeremy, as an example for this, or do you do you quibble a little bit with my with my example? No, I, I think there's. I think it's a ripe phrase, and the example you gave is falls within the purview of it, right? Like, sure. it, even though we're going to be talking a lot about the punishment of the wicked and stuff in this in this episode, <laughs> um, like as a as a personal thing, as as Christians to to harbor these sorts of fantasies of vengeance is is really a um a vile way to live we mm -hmm. might say uh and very much against even though it is acceptable for a christian to be an executioner for the state well okay depending on the state you're <laughs> maybe living, maybe right? maybe we'll get to that <laughs> but, but let's like say you live in a reasonably well-ordered and and just state. You're not in the Soviet Union. You're not in um, in California, right? Uh, <laughs> you're, um, which they don't execute people anyways. But um, but uh, you're in a reasonably well-ordered state. You could be an executioner, right? Even though it is, generally speaking, not supposed to be the sort of thing Christians are are fantasizing about or or talking about or, or thinking about, you know. It's like what Paul says, think about whatever's lovely, pure, and commendable. You know. Mm -hmm. Um you know, there there's some people who who need to do these sorts of jobs, perhaps, right? Um Yeah, so. yeah. No. And, there's and, there's and, and a I, distinction to be made here. I, I think it is what I'm, my point is, you know. Yes, and and I think specifically the difference is whether or not it's your wrath or God's wrath that you are executing. Oh yeah, good point. Good point. So is yeah. it is it I am I avenging myself? Is it my wrath or am I executing justice? Is it God's wrath? You know that that's actually being done. Hmm. And 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 the reason why I'm kind of bringing that up is I think it's really important that we connect this idea that you know God's wrath is something that like actually happens in time in history is you know executed by individuals. Um because like at least for me i you know if i hear something like the wrath of god i'm typically thinking of something that's more um like end timesy where it's like you know this is the final justice that you know god is going to you know finally set the world right or you know something like that but you even know, then either... paul says that we judge angels right like so we so even on the other side so in this side we have the the judgment that comes from say a court system right and legal punishment for the wrongdoer and actually we're going to be involved in the eternal meeting out of that with christ as we judge <laughs> uh even celestial beings right isn't that interesting oh yes no no that that, that is interesting and i think that actually bolsters my point of, of right that, no it does like, yeah <laughs> that, that god uses uh intermediaries as the like means by which he executes his wrath or executes his justice 
Um, and and so the point that I'm that I'm building to here is that the leaving room for the wrath of God is, I would argue, specifically in this case about temporal like wrath or like punishment for things that happen like today. Uh, you know, in this case, like it would be specifically, you know, someone being executed for a capital crime or something you, you, or, you know, justly executed for a capital crime. Or again, if like, you know, them having to pay restitution if they've like stolen something um, that like that's like that's closer to what's in view here. You know, and, and, and the reason why I would argue that is because it. it the 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 alternative of this wrath of god being something that's actually more you know kind of like final judgmenty where it's you know like cosmic justice that god is going to like execute in the end um i i'm i'm not sure that actually works in this case because how could god's ultimate justice be like edged out by other evil that we do in the world today you know so it's mm. like if like say that it is the case that bob did actually murder frank and then, you know, Frank catches up with him and, and you know, avenges him early, you know, to, to use the previous example. It's like, I don't think that just because Bob was then wrongly killed by Frank's brother, that doesn't, like, get him off the hook for the fact that he did, in fact, murder Frank. It does get, it does mean that he was not just, he didn't receive God's wrath in, in uh, he didn't justly receive God's wrath in this world. But it doesn't mean that he's, like, off the hook for it. And and so the like not leaving room for God's wrath, I think is is has to be something that's tied to to this temporal world because I I think it's the main one of the main central arguments that like God's justice is something that is going to be enacted in in eternity that like it, it, you know no one is you know quote getting off the hook like it, it is all paid for and all dealt with in the end even if some of it doesn't get properly dealt with in this world. So it sounds like you're saying that it's. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I just I sounded like Kathy Newman there, the, the woman who <laughs> so interviewed Jordan saying. Peterson. So what you're saying is, I'm not actually disagreeing with you though. So, nope. um, no so it sounds like kind of what you're getting at is that there's both a temporal and a eternal aspect to this, um, because even if it's not avenged by the avenger, which is the state, uh, the governing authorities, right? Even if they don't get to it, it will eventually be gotten to. But one yes. way or another, it will be gotten to. So it sounds like it's both temporal and eternal in the way you're arguing it. And I would agree. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that I think that Paul's main focus in this section is not on the ultimate justice, but on the temporal justice. Sure. And and that would be clear because of the fact that he goes on into chapter 13 to right. say what he says. About yes. Yeah, yeah, wrath, yeah. But I, I, I'm justifying yeah. those so claims now. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. I'm on board. I'm on board. That makes sense to me. As long Great. as we're not like excluding the, the, the eternal aspect of it, because I think that has to be there too for it yes. to fully no, make totally, sense. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, nice one. So, uh, the, so it says, you know, avenge not yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And then the, the next thing that Paul does is he gives a, a quotation. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Um, and the, the thing that Paul is actually, he, he's, Paul is actually making a quotation right there. And specifically he is quoting Deuteronomy 32, um, verse 35, if you'd like to follow along at home. Now, um, Deuteronomy 32 is a, a really long and, and complicated chapter, and so I'm not going to have us read it right now. Um, instead, I'm going to give a, a quick summary of what happens in, in Deuteronomy 32 so we can just maybe understand what Paul's saying and move on. Um, and, and, and so that is Deuteronomy 32, um, 
uh, is a uh, a section where it's in God's voice, where he is is talking to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And he says, in the future, you, Israel, are going to be unfaithful to me. Like, it, it's going to happen. You're going to go after other gods, you know, idolatry. It's really bad. So you're going to be unfaithful to me in the future. Um, and when that happens, I am going to punish you, Israel, for uh, uh, going away to other gods. And the way that I'm going to punish you is I'm going to raise up other nations and bring them in to basically destroy you militarily. Like, like that's what I'm going to do when you're unfaithful to me in the future. Um, but then, but then he, God switches and, and says, but it, it, you know, those other nations, when they come and destroy you are going to be arrogant about their victory. They're going to say like, you know, it was our greatness that caused us to defeat Israel. And aren't we so awesome? And so God is then going to turn around and destroy those nations for their arrogance. And the, in specifically verse 32 or verse 35 is specifically God saying that of the, the, you know, the, he says, you know, those other nations are, are terrible and I'm going to destroy them for, you know, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. Um, and, and so that, that's the particular quotation is, is specifically it is God saying that, you know, you Israel, despite the fact that you were unfaithful to me and despite the fact that it was, you know, <clears throat> it, you know, I'm the one who appointed these nations to destroy you. I'm still going to judge them for their arrogance anyway and, and destroy them nonetheless. Um, and then, you know, God goes on to, uh, uh, you know, circle back around to, to Israel's unfaithfulness and talk about that more. And the reason why I think this is important is because uh, uh, for Paul's audience, they would have gotten the reference that he's making um, where, you know, for us, you know, we don't necessarily have like, you know, Deuteronomy memorized or, you know, it wouldn't immediately like, oh, yes, of course, this is the section that it's talking about. Um and so when a Roman believer, you know, one of the Roman Christians, when they would hear Paul making this quotation, it would immediately pop to their mind, you know, you know, all of these these things. And so I like I think that what the quotation is serving in the flow of Paul's argument here is it, it's kind of doing a couple things. So in the first case, it's, I think, encouraging the Roman believers to actually be faithful to God. And so this is sort of flowing in with the, you know, don't repay evil with evil you know, don't curse, bless, you know, do, do, do that, that which is good, not that which is evil, because, you know, God's going to hold you accountable for it. You know, if God judged Israel for their evil, God can judge you for your evil too. So, you know, be careful is, is one piece of it. Um, and, and in fact, that's actually, you know, this, this passage in Deuteronomy 32 is also quoted in the book of Hebrews. And, and that's exactly the way that the author of Hebrews is using this quotation in that context of specifically, you know, hey, be careful, you believers, because, you know, God's going to hold people, God's going to hold you accountable for the evil that you do. Um, and if you're unfaithful specifically. But then I, I think it also kind of serves in the, in, the, in the flip side as well to assure the Roman believers that God is in fact going to like follow through with protecting his people. So, you know, it's, you know, it, basically it's like God says to Israel that he's going to destroy them by like using these people. Um, and, you know, er, th that's what God did. But then he says, I'm going to follow up and then destroy those nations for their arrogance. And again, if you like look in history, that's exactly what happened. You know, Assyria comes in and destroys the Northern Kingdom. But like, where's Assyria today? Like, they're, they're totally gone. They've been destroyed. Same thing with like Babylon. You know, they carried off, uh, you know, the Israelites. But like, where's Babylon today? They're, they're destroyed. And so even though God judges Israel, he does follow through with protecting, um, uh, you know, restoring Israel and destroying Israel's enemies. 
And <clears throat> so that, that that's sort of the other piece. If one, be careful. Two, God does follow through with, with his promises. And I think kind of the, the, the final piece here is, you know, kind of stitching those two ideas together is like, if God destroys Israel for their arrogance, when it was the case that Assyria was God's instrument for judging Israel, like, how much more is God going to destroy the enemies of his people that are like, you know, just bad? Like, you know, they're, they're not like God's appointed, you know, instrument of of judgment or something like that if they're just like persecuting god's people like how much more is god going to bring you know bring to bear his wrath against these you know evildoers you know if they're not even his appointed instrument and so i like i think if you bring the whole thing together this is an encapsulation of the whole point that paul's making don't do the evil things do the good things cling on to the good because then if you are wronged if evil is paid to you God is going to give you justice. That's kind of the main the main point of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a large theme of scripture. So it's <laughs> in accordance, right? Mm -hmm. With what else we know of scripture. Yeah. Well, so, and so, oh, yes, yeah, no, so, you go ahead. Well, no. So I, I was just saying, are we, do we have any more of chapter 12 yet? Are we reaching the end of it? Yes, so I mean that basically brings us to to the end of chapter twelve, um, or at least what we want to talk about. And and we spent a long time kind of going through this section. And the reason why I wanted us to take that time to talk about it is because it I think it really sets the stage for how we should understand God's wrath and the like good and evil when we actually come into Romans thirteen. So maybe if I could just give us a quick summary, and then we can come into our main section here. The the first one is. It's really important uh, to to identify that this notion of God's wrath is, in the first case, something that like happens in time and is enacted by individuals. So it's like it it's you know people who are enacting God's wrath. Um, you know so this this is the you know the idea of it's the it's the state that's punishing people or you know things like that, and that that's really kind of the focus that Paul is is bringing to bear here. That there it, there are ways that God's wrath can be brought about in this world that are just and are righteous and are, in fact, the way that God wants it to be done. But there's also ways that that wrath can be enacted in this world that are not good, you know, uh, that are, you know, this is like our own petty vengeance or us paying back people evil for evil. Well, and, and, and if I could, like, so the term wrath in, in Scripture... Yeah. Like, so this is another one of those instances where we want to be careful of theologizing a term that's not necessarily a technical theological term. Mm -hmm. So like the, I mean, I think we've talked a lot in, in the past about like the term salvation and how that's not a technical term. It's just like a literally it's, it's a Greek word. Right? And mm -hmm. so it, because we're so used to hearing the word salvation in a technical sense, sometimes we don't understand the sense of it in scripture yeah. and wrath is like, wrath is the same thing it just means anger it's it's not always talking about like um eternal punishment of the wicked like you know it does mean you know in this context it does mean punishment that's true um i just think it's important that we don't over interpret the word yes um, and i'm looking it up in greek now just so i make sure i understand which word it is um yeah or gay or gay to, to uh, you know that's the word for wrath um and it just means 
you know, it, it's used for, of, of anger generally, you know, so let's just keep that in mind, <laughs> you know, yes. um, it's kind of a strong term for anger granted, but it is sometimes translated as just anger. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and so that, that we should be careful that we aren't applying a, you know, I was talking about this in like, you know, some kind of like cosmic justice, eternal punishment of the wicked sort of idea that that's that, I mean, that is a thing, but that I don't think that's really the main focus of what Paul is talking about here, that he's really talking about something more specific, more temporal. That's really just kind of like temporal. Well, uh, I'd say temporal punishments for sins, but that, that, that means uh, something a little bit more specific. If you're a, a, a Catholic. <laughs> that's also a technical term. <laughs> Yes, I was not meaning that in a technical <laughs> sense, but <laughs> uh, but yes, but the 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 punishments for sins which are temporal, I'll say it that way, so that it's <laughs> it's not the special phrase. Um, and so so that's one piece, and then the second piece is highlighting the 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 pairing of of good and evil, um, so that we should cling to the evil and reject the good. And and the reason why I bring that up is that. Paul has been talking about this idea for a number of verses before he gets into Romans 13, and that Paul means something very specific about those goods and evils that we should be doing. And a lot of it really has to do with just being a good community member. Um, so it's things like living in peace with people, you know, being a peacemaker, or it's being sympathetic to the, the needs and um, experiences of the people around you, or it's things like being hospitable. So it, it's that that there is something very specific about what being good or like clinging to good means in Paul's mind as he's kind of going through the section here. And a lot of it, again, like I'm saying, has to do with just like being a good neighbor, being a good citizen, being the kind of person that other people want around is kind of maybe the, the way that I'd put it. And, and, and that's not exclusive what he's ta- exclusively what he's talking about, but I mean, that, that's the main thrust of, of what he means in, in the end of Romans 12, at least. And so with that, I think that that sort of summary then brings us to the verse that we started with in our discussion. So Romans 13, verse 1, you know, and so we come back to let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Including Hitler. <laughs> yes, yes, so that... that Oh, oh yeah, that wasn't that wasn't me giving yeah. a misconception. That's actually literally <laughs> No, no, yes, yeah. no. It, totally. <laughs> That's it's, what it means. The the thing to notice is uh one of the huge points that Paul makes in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is that like God has his sovereign prerogatives to establish the world exactly the way that he wants it to be and that he is in control of the things that happen. I'm I'm thinking specifically of this as like Romans 8, where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Or in Romans 9, where God, you know, talks about preparing, you know, vessel, you know, some vessels for destruction and some vessels for um, uh, for honorable use. I'm not getting that quotation exactly right. I apologize. You know, or like, or, like you mentioned earlier, the <clears throat> raising up of nations to judge other nations, even though it was wicked. <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. Even though it was wicked for the nation to do what it did, it was actually in God's sovereign providence mm-hmm. that he raised up the wicked nation to punish his own people for their own sin, right? Yes. And and so it so it totally is in line with Paul, with Paul's previous theology and I'd say even just broadly the theology of scripture that when God 
um, that that the the people who are in power right now are there because God has appointed them to have that power. You know, again, like you're saying, whether it's whether they're good people or bad people, they are in authority because God has put them there. Right. Yeah. The 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 other point that I would um, make about this is. Uh, uh, you know, connecting back to the first episode that we actually did um, talking about uh, politics. And that was, uh, we were we were looking at what um, different kinds of authority structures there are of like husbands and wives, you know, parents and children, masters and slaves, and governments and those who are governed or, you know, and also elders and congregants and things like that. And one of the points that we made there is in all of those cases, those authority structures are derived authority structures. That there's nothing like intrinsic to the like elder that makes them, uh, you know, an authority person, but that like they have authority because God has given them authority. And so ultimately it's God's authority that is then mediated through an individual into the world. And that that's exactly the point that Paul is making right here, that he is saying, you know, there is no authority except from God. And so those that exist have been instituted by God. So the appointed rulers, the reason why they have authority is because it's derived authority from God, not that the this governing authority or this state or this government or whatever in and of themselves are just, you know, like, it's not that they have the authority, it's, it's they have been given this authority from God. And I, I mean, I'll just highlight that um, because that might seem kind of obvious to us, but I mean, not to people in the ancient world. Um, they literally worshipped their pharaoh as god in Egypt, mm, like yeah. <laughs> you know. And there was even you know a divine right of kings kind of take, uh, even post post you know Christ in in Christendom, which you know at times bordered on, if not crossed the line into just straight up like I get to make the rules because God told me I I get to, right? <laughs> um, this yeah, this sort of might makes right approach where where i'm divinely appointed so mm -hmm. it, it's not a given and obvious to all people uh that that's the case right? uh, that it's a derived authority only kind of with hindsight perhaps we do we know that mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally so maybe kind of moving on so we can let's just keep kind of stepping through uh romans 13 and maybe make some observations and then at the end we can maybe summarize again and uh, uh you know talk about some perhaps some examples or make some applications how does that sound jeremy sounds good to me all right <clears throat> so the so we you know we just got this verse of uh you know for there's no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god the next verse verse two uh, how about actually you read this for us, Jeremy? Yeah, uh, let's see. Sorry, I, I'm scrolling up to the passage. Oh, no worries. Oh, were we were we going to talk about the um, <laughs> the the argument that verse one is like this passage is not original to Paul? Oh, okay. Well, how about okay? How about you give us the you you give us the pitch for that, Jeremy? So I, th I think we got to talk about that. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll take a second and, and discuss it because I, I I think that's that's worthwhile maybe for our audience. Yeah, so some people argue that um, this passage is such an interesting departure from what Paul was just talking about. That uh, clearly this must have been uh, a later edition and it wasn't original to Paul's letter, right? Uh, so first this of would all, be like some scribe 
you know, 150 years after Paul or something like that is making his copy of the book of Romans and just inserts these seven verses or so, you know, right into the middle of the, you know, what was verse just chapter 12. Precisely that. And, um, you know, I'm not going to mince words. It's just an idiotic argument. It's so idiotic. For one, we've already <laughs> demonstrated with, you know, like we don't have PhDs in the Bible and we just demonstrated that there's actually quite a big connection between these two ideas. Um, so there's that. But also number two, there's no textual evidence of this. We don't have manuscripts omitting this section like we <laughs> it's not a thing right it, there are sections of scripture where our best manuscripts do omit things that are in like the king james version which was translated from the textus receptus so that's things like for example in your modern bibles you will see the story of the woman caught in adultery who jesus forgives in john 8 you'll usually have some like brackets around it and a footnote saying this wasn't probably original to John's gospel. Um, you know, so there are sections where that is a concern. Um, but so, so maybe, you, there's maybe, maybe typically textual evidence. People. There's yeah, textual so, evidence for it. This is not the case with. Yeah. So, so to highlight that for people in the case of like the woman caught in adultery, we have copies of manuscripts that, you know, basically just like you, you're, you have the book of John and you're like reading through it and it just like doesn't have those verses in it. It just like skips straight over them. And we like have a copy of that manuscript, a manuscript that has that in it. And then and we, we also have a have, lot of them and they're early yes. manuscripts. They're reliable, you know. <laughs> right. And then we also have tons of manuscripts that do in fact have that section in. And, you know, uh, you know, and so the, it, you could like make an argument that like, oh, you know, because, you know, maybe this, you know, section was like inserted by a later scribe or, you know, whatever your theory is. But at the very least, like you actually have manuscripts that don't have the section in there. And so it's not, you know, on its face absurd to to suggest that like, well, maybe this wasn't in there originally. Contrast that with the Book of Romans, where we literally where we have literally no manuscripts that don't have Romans 13 in it, but have all of the surrounding verses like it, so it's, it's just pure conjecture. It's just making crap up. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not scholarship. It's it, so and this is this is the problem. There's even there's a scholar I highly respect, um, Gordon Fee. I'll name drop him um, just because I really do highly respect him. But uh, but he made the argument that first Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35 were not Pauline. Um, and those are the verses that say women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must remain in submission. And Gordon Fee is, you know, somewhat of an egalitarian. I don't think feminist is the right word, because um, that would make him sound like, you know, like a contemporary intersectional feminist, which he's clearly not. He's a conservative guy on most issues. But on this, he, you know, he believes in women pastors and all that stuff. So, so he, um, you know, argues that that's not Paul, right? And it's like, dude, there's no manuscripts that omit it. There's a few, I think, that swap it to a different area, um, which can be evidence of of manuscript errors, you know, but in this case, it's like there's no manuscripts that omit those verses. So anyways, I just think this is something scholars do when they don't know how to explain a text in light of their theology. And rather than figure it out, they just oh, well, you know, maybe Paul didn't even write it. And I just, I find it so revolting. Like, I, it's just such an abuse of scholarship. It's it's not scholarship. Um, 
again, by a guy who's otherwise really good. But, it, you know, Paul clearly says something that contradicts his worldview. Clearly. Right. And he's just like, well, it's not Pauline. I just it, I, I think it's stupid. Um, I thought I think I've made my point on it clear. But this is very much the yes. same. Look, as a libertarian, sure, it would just delight me to get rid of this passage. Then I don't have to think about it. But that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could get rid of all that cognitive dissonance. Um, but I'm not going to do that because it's obviously written by Paul. So, like, you know, I don't know. That's just my two cents on that. Uh, it drives me up the wall when scholars do that. If you ever, if you ever thought you need to listen to biblical scholars and you just need to trust them and take them at their word, never do that. That's the absolute worst way to read your Bible. <laughs> yep. Well, there it is, folks. You you heard it here first. Uh, uh, <laughs> scholars are perpetrate the most egregious crimes against the scriptures and they're also great when they're great you have to you know keep your brain on that's all yeah there we go there we go which i mean is, is probably just a good principle for most things you know whether it's you know if whether you're listening to a bible scholar or a pastor or you know even us it's like you, know, you should keep your brain on like uh, you know don't just don't just take our words for it Okay, so that rabbit trail aside, now sure. that we've decided we actually do need to care about what Paul says here, because it is right. what Paul said. <laughs> Verse 2. You asked me to read it. I shall yes, read it. Yes, please do. <laughs> okay. So, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So... That this one's really interesting, right? Because uh, um, on you know first read, um, this one this one seems to be like also really straightforward. That it's like yeah, like you, you just you have to do what the government says, uh, and if you don't, God's gonna judge you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, like I could see how people just like reading through it might kind of come to that conclusion. But I, I guess I I think it's really interesting the specific phraseology that Paul uses in this verse. And, you know, I, we should, I, I need to be careful that I'm not, like, trying to explain away what Paul is saying or something like that. But I do actually want to highlight this and have us talk about it a little bit. The, the first thing I would say is the, the phraseology is, is, is resisting the authorities. And it says that, you know, they're resisting what God has appointed. Now, Paul doesn't say, like, it, he doesn't, like, explicitly say, you know, whoever resists authority does a grave evil or, you know, something like that. It's, it's. It's particular what he's saying. It's resisting what God has appointed and that those who resist will incur judgment. You know, but it is the case that Paul has just said that, like, all governing authorities are those that have been appointed by God. And clearly some governing authorities are good and some governing authorities are bad, um, you know, just sort of in an objective sense. And it, and so, it, you know, it's saying that it's like, you know, you 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 certainly are resisting what God has appointed, but I think that's maybe more of a just a like a derived feature of the fact that like the authorities are there because they've been appointed by god and so clearly if you're resisting them you're resisting what god has appointed i don't know yeah what, so how, how does that land for you bonhoeffer when he refused to go along with the nazi party again i mean i know we keep bringing up hitler but it's it's apropos um to bring up the most extreme example right um Bonhoeffer, uh, when he resisted the Nazi party because of his Christian faith, was resisting what God had appointed. Clearly, because God has appointed and instituted every authority that exists. 
Paul made that very clear. And I think in this case, all does mean all. <laughs> Every does. I, I do think from in context, like that's what he means, because literally everything is under God's sovereign hand. So, yeah, like resisting Hitler is resisting what God has appointed. That doesn't make it sinful. Like Paul doesn't say that. Right. Um, it, I think what he what he's saying is like, be cognizant that you are resisting the person whom God has in his sovereign will, you know, given a lot of temporal power, like the power to kill you, the power to kill your wife and children or to send, send your children to war or take all your possessions and property. I mean, governments can have a lot of power, <laughs> right? And they've been given that power by God. Like, you know, yes. Even, you know, if we're talking in a sovereignty sense, right? Not necessarily an ethical, moral sense. God doesn't approve of evil governance, but he does, in in his decree, allow wicked rulers to be raised up, according to Romans 9, so that he can strike them down and display his glory in their defeat, right? Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> I would just say, like, yeah, uh, if you resist you are resisting what God has appointed to resist the Nazi party. Um, and you are doing the right thing also, <laughs> which might sound a little funny to people, but I, I don't think Paul would disagree with anything I just said. I think that's the exact logic of this passage. Right. And the, I totally agree, you know, and, and, you know, someone might say, well, but, but the next phrase says, you know, but those who resist will incur judgment. So isn't that like saying then that, you know, you're, you're going to be judged by God for resisting what he's appointed? Uh, no, it's saying you're going to be judged by the governing authority for resisting the governing authority. Because judgment, just like wrath, is not always a technical theological term for eternal judgment. It's just a Greek word, like <laughs> right. So and and it yeah. and it doesn't and it doesn't even say that you're going to be incurring God's judgment. It just is, you know, judgment. And see, so you have to do a little bit of inference to figure out well, who whose judgment are you incurring by resisting authorities? Obviously, the authority's judgment. And if the authority is being just, then you will also incur God's judgment in the next life. Right. Right. <laughs> so, and, and and that is a big part of this passage. We're going to get to in a couple of verses. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, no, no, totally. And and so I, I, I think that the that the interpretation that we can give to this verse, maybe kind of moving forward, is something like that of it's it's closer to an acknowledgement of saying you know you know resisting authorities is it's poking a bear like i mean these like authorities they they really are powerful people and they're powerful because god has made them powerful and if you resist them like y you are going to be incurring their judgment their wrath against it and if it is the case that they're good rulers it's just and you know and if they're bad rulers maybe it's not just the punishment that they're you know rendering to you but that doesn't change the fact that you're, you're getting punished anyway for going against the authorities, right? right? It's the natural order of things. Um, whether right or wrong, Paul's describing the world as it really works, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, yeah. If you, if you want to incur judgment from the current presidential administration, there are lots of righteous Christian ways you could do that. <laughs> right. right. Like, you know, so 
just I think that's important to keep in mind. And nevertheless, they are appointed by God, right? Yeah, like but, you, you Christian, oh. you, uh, Christian, you know, um, I don't know who 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 has a very triumphalist view over the government. Um, perhaps myself, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> right. but but uh, they are they are an authority over you. It's kind of like the whole like also the not my president thing when Trump was elected. You know, it's kind of put the shoe on the other foot a little bit. It's like, well, yeah, but he is though. Like, <laughs> sorry, like just in like, reality. And I mean, look, I you can ignore his existence. I actually think that's probably the smart thing to do. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's like, but the man to... <laughs> was definitely sitting in the Oval Office. Like he yeah. was like signing papers and stuff, had the letterhead and everything, right? Like, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that he like very clearly was the president. He is factually the president and you got to cope with it one way or another. And then it's right. like now the shoes on the other foot. Both of the last two presidential elections have been, you know, seen as stolen. Right. And and right. regardless of, of the veracity of either claim. Right. The fact yeah. of the matter is it doesn't actually matter whether it was stolen from a God sovereignty standpoint. It does from right. an ethical standpoint, right? We, yeah. we might it's, care it's, whether it was stolen or not, but at right, the end yeah. of the day, Biden is in the Oval Office, okay? And right. God help us, Kamala is going to be there when he bites the dust. It doesn't matter if it was stolen, ultimately. Like, sorry, it, they won one right. way or another, ethically or not. And right? those who resist will incur judgment. <laughs> whether right or wrong you know right so, yeah so that's my little like dig there at both kind of sides right it's like doesn't really matter if the election was stolen or not i mean it does but it, it certainly does don't get me wrong i'm not saying we should not care if it was it's just like at the end of the day god granted them power right? so unless you're unless you're going to overthrow the government which i don't necessarily recommend um you know that might go bad for you uh, it'll probably go very badly for you. <laughs> probably go very poorly for you. Uh, they are, in fact, the president. Um, right. So it's, it's, I don't know. <laughs> but but lest we maybe maybe hit the, the 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 side of this whole argument that's saying like, well, it's it's not like always wrong to to. It's not like always sinful to resist uh, uh, governments. I'd say. I, I I think the vast majority of cases where one would r resist the government probably are wrong. You know, for instance, like resisting the government in the sense of like, well, no, I am going to go steal that thing. Well, no, I am going to go, you know, vigilante, kill that person because of the wrong that they did to me. Like totally is resisting the authorities if there's like laws against those things. And that's all like definitely wrong and evil. And so I guess I would say maybe to 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 make sure we don't go too far out into the extreme edge cases i think the vast majority of the center of this really is that there a lot of times is alignment between like the 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 will of the government which i mean primarily is for maintaining civil order i mean unless the government is self-destructive like i mean they, they they you know want to maintain an orderly um like community basically that Frequently that like that maintenance of order is something that is good and our resistance of that is would be bad. I, like, I think that that's kind of the majority of the case. And I, you know, I'll. Even North Korea has laws against murder. Yes. And it would be wrong to resist the North Korean government by murdering your you know neighbor <laughs> in that particular instance. <laughs> yes, it that, would be that wrong to resist. Very that. specific instance. <laughs> um, 
and and so again it's like and i would say the vast majority of things that are resisting authorities are in that category of actually wrong kinds of things um we just typically don't you know if if you've like grown up being conditioned to be a moral person it just wouldn't like necessarily occur to you to do those kind of resisting behaviors or you know it it just wouldn't be a, a thing that you do like you know, it's not it's not like something that I'm just like constantly contemplating murdering people. But I'm like, oh, shoot. No, that would be resisting the authorities. You know, and, <laughs> right. You, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So and, and 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 the reason why I kind of bring up that point is because then when we get to verse three, Paul, you know, has this to say, he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And so now Paul is actually bringing in specifically moral language. That it's not just like resisting authorities and incurring judgment, which, you know, I'd argue is not intrinsically moral per se, but this one definitely is moral, the argument that Paul's making of, you know, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And I would also say that that this loops us in with chapter 12, because we have previous definitions from chapter 12 of what Paul means by good conduct and bad. It's specifically that clinging to the good and resisting or, or hating evil. And like I was saying before, that a lot of these things really are like being a good community member of, you know, being hospitable to people or taking care of the poor saints that are around you or making peace with your neighbors and things like that. And so in that context, it's like, hey, man, if you're trying to like promote a like a community that's like orderly and peaceful, it's like, I mean, what what ruler is going to be a you know a terror to that kind of good conduct uh some you know, are okay sure let's sure, put some... a pin in that okay yes okay <laughs> we, we yeah. can talk about that in the other meet right yeah yeah yeah. we we will get around to that but i think <laughs> but but i think this is the point that paul is making of it's like come on like what if like what ruler is going to be a terror to you being like i want to be hospitable to my neighbors and take care of the poor around me and you know like ensure that I like have peaceful relationships with the people around me. It's like, no, they're going to be like, Oh great. This is a person that I'm not like, you know, going to need to keep track of and make sure they're, you know, going to be like toppling me or something like that. Like they're not a threat to me as a ruler. Yeah. I think this section is difficult for me. This is, this is the verse that I actually find the hardest to interpret simply because Paul states directly rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Because that's just factually wrong when taken out of context. <laughs> like, and obviously, I, yes. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, okay? But like reading it and taking it at its most face value, that's just literally, how could you even say that? Like, Paul, you're not an idiot. I mean, Hitler hadn't been a thing yet when Paul was around. But dude, like, he was well aware that the Romans crucified Christ. Okay. The government crucified Christ. <laughs> like, yes. So how could you say this? I, I, I think the way that I, I'm curious to hear your take on this, because this one sentence and this, and that the following thing is do what is good and you will receive his approval. I mean, that's just not the case, right? The way that I have taken it and understand it to be is Paul is describing kind of perhaps a general or even we might say ideal situation uh and he's not here giving a complete comprehensive portrait of the christian's relationship to the state right he's presuming that his readers have some sort of understanding of like daniel and his friends uh you know going against nebuchadnezzar and you know uh 
they they know the stories of the apostles you know paul himself disobeyed the government a lot right uh and just you know and then of course christ himself being crucified i just think paul is saying this in a context where he knows his readers are well aware of that they're experiencing sporadic persecution you know from mm-hmm. the government and so i think i think he's he's stating something general and or ideal right like even in this state that can be very wicked against us the romans still keep order right they built the roads right like, right uh the pox romana they they keep order now they might be vicious to us at times but like this is still something instituted by god that does good things in the world despite its many issues you know and so I, I, that's kind of how i would take it i'm curious what you think yes well I, I maybe maybe let's just read the I'll, I'll read these couple of verses just so it's in people's head and then I'll, I'll I'll give my take because I'm not sure I totally agree with you. Um, okay, good. On, on yeah, I'm one. curious. I, I I'm not super satisfied with that way of understanding it. Right. I think it's kind of like <clears throat> iffy. So, yeah, I'd say so. Verse three. So you know, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So I I think that really what's going on here is, again, like I was saying, I, I think we need to understand the good and the bad that are in this section in light of Romans 12. And and this is sort of the pitch that I was I was just giving where uh, it's that the the good and the bad that Paul was talking about before is mostly having to do with having um like like peaceful and uh non-toxic relationships in your community. Um like or that that's a lot of what the the exhortation is about. And so it, 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 I, I'm not sure that it's so much that Paul is talking about an ideal case, but that he's talking about a normative case uh, where it is uh, that, you know, like go, like going on in the background is like, wh- what is it that the ruler really wants? It's, I mean, usually to maintain their hold on power is, is like fundamentally what the ruler, the person who's in authority wants is, you know, they don't want to be displaced. They don't want to be overturned. They don't want to be toppled. You know, they want to kind of like maintain their position, perhaps expand it as well. And so if you're looking at what is it that the ruler then wants from citizens or from subjects uh, is, you know, basically non like like them to not be threats to their authority and, you know, maybe to pay them taxes or, you know, things like that. And, and, and so the the kinds of people that those rulers would be approving of or rewarding or, you, you know, giving this like yeah giving this approval to are the kinds of people that are maintaining the community structure that they rely upon to maintain their rule and so it and and i I think that's really kind of the what's in the main focus here and that like principally the kinds of things that that rulers want is i like i don't think rulers want people behaving in immoral ways generally 
it's like i mean even if you have a uh so 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 hear me out like so t- take the worst case of you know someone who has power in a community like a mobster or something like that like the mobster doesn't want you know shop owners going around and killing people because the mobster is the one who wants to be going around <laughs> and killing people and actually there's lots of communities where they think fondly of the local mafia like that's a thing if you... <laughs> yeah sure because they keep order right like yeah. you know and, and and so in that case it's like you know the state or the ruler doesn't want people running around avenging themselves or paying people back or doing these kinds of things because you know in just a, a very pragmatic sense they're the ones who want to maintain the monopoly on force uh, like i mean that's just sort of the way that it is and so if you are and so in the context of Romans 12, Paul is saying, don't do these evil, terrible, toxic things. Do these like good, positive for your community kinds of things. Like basically be be the best kind of citizen, the best kind of member of, of your community that you can. Because like that's exactly what the ruler wants. Like even, even if the ruler is evil, they don't want you to be evil. Or, or it's, it's, or they, like I'd say, normatively, even if a ruler is evil, they don't want you to be evil per se. Okay, so they would so still far, rather you be good. So far, I agree with everything you've said, but I would point out something interesting because I also okay. think I'm still right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so here's how I'm trying to work it through. I find okay. it interesting that you said, maybe, maybe you don't remember, but you said specifically that generally, you use the word generally, governments don't want people to be you know going around doing these things yeah which is is i think a correct statement and also only correct generally because there's we are living right now through a government that actively encourages and desires chaos right so and that's Mm kind of what i want to talk about later i just i don't want to get derailed from the passage but the concept of anarcho tyranny um which i hope we can chat about uh yes (laughs) so we'll get there um so i would say i find it interesting though you use the phrase generally Mm -hmm. you use that word and that was my whole point is that paul is speaking generally right well no 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 because your your point was paul was (laughs) paul was speaking ideally well i said i said i I was undecided between the two okay okay and maybe it was a little bit of both and i actually am still kind of there Okay, okay. I'm, <laughs> but I I'm, also I'm, think I'm, what you said is correct, but I don't think they sure. contradict. Okay, sure, sure. Okay. I, I, I think I'm just more more on the pragmatic side of the, the interpretation of it, maybe. Sure, and, and yeah. you're not done yet. I think I, I did kind of jump in there, so keep going. No, no, I mean, I, I, I was kind of toward the end. And, and then the, the, this notion of, like, them bear, not bearing the sword in vain and being God's servant and the avenger to carry out God's wrath on, on wrongdoers is is exactly that point of even if the ruler themselves is evil if they are doing things to punish evil like punish the evil of their their citizens they are still fulfilling god's appointed role for them of like carrying out his wrath on wrongdoing you know because you know before we were you know it's the vengeance is mine i will repay is what the lord says and it's like and, and in that context of Deuteronomy 32, it's he's talking about using Assyria to punish Israel for their wickedness. And Assyria was manifestly in like evil, like is like Sargon and Sennacherib, like were manifestly evil people in, you know, what they did. But they're still served God's appointed purpose of enacting this wrath against Israel for their sin. And so 
in in you know to to use that idea here that it's like the ruler doesn't need to be good to still be appointed as God's servant to carry out his wrath against wrongdoers and i like i guess that's the point that 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 i'm you know building to you know with that and and summarizing that is it's this general principle that usually like the thing that rulers do is like uh uh they 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 want people who have these peaceable who develop peaceable communities and you know they don't want the kind of people who don't do the peaceful things and 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 they want to punish people who do evil things uh, again even if they're evil because they want the monopoly on the evil and the force and so they're going to you know bring the hammer down on you even if it's hypocritical and by doing so they are fulfilling god's purpose whether or not they're good or not does that make sense yeah yep okay i'm on board okay and i think to to add on to the idea of like generally right yeah even in a broken system it is probably the case that most of the people responsible for law and order in your local community like genuinely want to just keep order right like yeah. it, it's um maybe not if you live in seattle right <laughs> but if you live like where i do in snohomish county um it's a different world than king county and it's especially a different world than seattle it's a short drive away but like i don't know it's got a lot of issues but generally speaking i bet you talk to the average uh policeman here right and yeah. their motivations would be quite pure you know, it, right. we're, we're not talking about like deep levels of corruption, even if there's broken things about the system. You talk to the average judge in the courthouse here in Everett, which is just a few blocks, a few streets down from where I live. Like they they probably have the best of intentions. Right. Right. Um, and in many cases, uh, accomplish justice. I served on a jury last year and I think we made the right decision and the judge was fair and and we enacted justice on somebody who deserved to incur the judgment of the state. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a petty white collar crime or some stupid thing. It was, you know, he assaulted a child. Right. So it, like, so yeah, I think that was an example right in my neighborhood here of incurring judgment and being a terror to bad conduct, even in this, this uh, very, uh, this system that I would say is not very amenable to my overall perspective. They certainly kept order in one significant way. Um, right. You know, punishing somebody who harmed a child. And, and so like, yeah, now again, as I kind of commented, cities are sort of not that way <laughs> anymore. Yeah, Not all cities, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm thinking of the larger metropolitan areas and stuff, but still generally speaking, like probably, the the vast majority of this country just um speaking of land like is being governed by people who earnestly care like most of the people whether they make sure. a ton of mistakes or not they're not trying to to be a terror to bad conduct or to to, to good conduct i mean they're trying to be a terror to right. bad conduct and in many cases they succeed at it despite yeah. how much i might not like them <laughs> right. right so that's where i have to like jump in and say like well you know my personal opinions notwithstanding still in god's providence they are in fact carrying out the wrath of god on the wrongdoer right which makes this passage generally true <laughs> right yeah because well because and i would say that if they don't do that if they don't carry out god's wrath on the wrongdoer then like that's basically how you get societies dissolving like like i mean that that's the descent into utter chaos that just like undoes the whole thing is when is when rulers stop being a 
uh, terror to bad conduct and start being terrors to good conduct. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anarcho tyranny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So <laughs> great. Well, we'll tell you what. So, so now, now that I've convinced you and I've gotten you on board, uh, which I'm very happy about, uh, let's, um, let, let's, let's do our last verse and maybe make a few comments about it. And then we can sort of wrap up and, and go on to some higher level discussions. How's that sound? Perfect. So verse five, uh, says, therefore one must be in, uh, a subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, um, this, I would say, first first observation is that this is a bit of a summary verse. So, so Paul is talking about a thing and he's saying, now, therefore, looping back around to before, one must be in subjugation. And then he gives sort of the, the two summary statements, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There's kind of two reasons why we should be in uh, subjection to ruling, uh, to, to rulers, basically. Um now, before before we dig into it, one thing I'm going to say is uh, I think the ESV actually has a really bad translation here. Um, <laughs> say it ain't so. Betrayed by my elect standard version. I know um, the ESV usually does a great job, but in this case, it really doesn't. Um, and and that is because it says not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of uh, conscience. So it puts the word gods in there. And the the reason why I would say that this is a bad a bad translation is because this is totally like a, a tra interpretive liberty that the ESV translators have taken. Uh, the actual Greek that's in here, um, which I know not because I read Greek, but because I've read people who do read Greek, um, and so we'll need Jeremy to to fact check me on this one. But the actual Greek here um, just says um, uh, uh, its wrath. So it's like not only to avoid its wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, th so the Greek doesn't say gods. It's, you know, just this impersonal possessive pronoun it's. Um, and so it, 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 it's incumbent upon then the translator to either just render it, um, uh, 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 I would say, uh, ambiguously of it's or to make a decision about who the it's actually refers to. Um, because in this case, it's like, you know, is it, it could be, so it could be God's wrath because, you know, God is part of the sentence of like, you know, you know, therefore one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but it also could be the rulers who it's their wrath. It says, you know, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid the ruler's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Yeah. So I actually will have to correct you a little bit. It doesn't change the oh. point substantially, but there oh, isn't okay. a, there isn't a possessive pronoun here. It's just, oh, there isn't. Okay. It's just tain or gain, which is the wrath. Although, oh, just... um, yeah, unless there's some, some, uh, textual <laughs> disagreement that I'm unaware of, but what oh, I, sure. what I found by a Google search, I don't have my, uh, Greek new Testament next to me is okay. just the wrath. Um, okay. Okay. So it's, it's but, not it's, but yeah, but, it, and typically in Greek, there's a lot of times when the article the is used, but you wouldn't translate it in sure. English as the, because, um, the word the is a little more definite, uh, in English than it always is in you know, that it often is in Greek. So in this case, he doesn't mean not only to avoid the wrath, the wrath. It, it's yes. just, it's just to avoid wrath. That would be like yep. the most straightforward. Yep. And, and that's the way that the NASB renders it is, you know, not only to avoid wrath, but also to, you know, and, and so that, that's the way that it is there. But, but, but yeah, so, so that in the same way in verse two, it says, you know, the one who resists will incur judgment, um, but it doesn't specify whose judgment you're incurring per se. And so you, you kind of have to, do a little bit of interpretive work to figure out whose judgment it is. The same thing is happening here. It's not only to avoid 
wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And now we got to figure out, well, who's, you know, whose anger, whose wrath is it that we are avoiding by being in subjugation? Um, and and uh, the depending on which translation you read, there's actually pretty big disagreement about this. Um, so the New English translation uh, actually renders it the wrath of the authorities. Um, and the NIV and the NLT um, both uh, sort of point at it being the wrath of the authorities indirectly by saying, you know, to avoid punishment um, or to avoid, uh, like, its wrath, I, I guess, is the way that it, it, it renders it there. But I, 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 I'm inclined to say that this also, again, is referring specifically to the wrath of the authorities or, or principally to the wrath of the authorities. Um, and that's because this is just following the same pattern of what we've seen through the whole section, that, that Paul is really primarily concerned with kind of the temporal results of the things that, that we do. So this is, you know, it's, uh, you know, leave space for God's wrath. And, and in that context, it's about the temporal God's wrath of being punished for your wrongdoing. You know, and before it's, you know, I would argue that it's incur judgment, it's incur the authority's judgment because they will judge you for resisting them. And in the same case here, I'd say it's it's the same sort of idea that, you know, you should be in a in subjugation not only to avoid wrath, you know, the authority's wrath. That it's like if you're not in subjugation to the authorities, they're gonna be mad at you. Like, you know, that that's kind of the the idea that we see here. Hot take. So oh, what okay. if what if it is referring to the wrath of God, but it's using it in the sense of the chapter twelve statement of leaving it to the wrath of God? Oh, so what if, sure. Yeah, so and this is why the ESV translating it this way is so stupid. Sorry, I keep using the word stupid today. It's really bad. It's a bad right. translation. There's no reason to throw the word gods in there. Just keep it at wrath. Because then it's ambiguous, which is what it is in the Greek. <laughs> right. Like, so it should be ambiguous to let the English reader decide, right? So Yes. And 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 I would say I think that it's that it's intentional to be ambiguous. It's not that like that because there is kind of this connection between the the wrath of the authorities and the wrath of god in the whole section of you know it's they're appointed by god you know they're god's avenger uh you know mm -hmm. to and you know enact his wrath against wrongdoing and so when you get this to avoid wrath it's like i think you're right that like it is god's wrath but it's mediated specifically in this context as the anger of the authorities like it's it's in time them having wrath against you for resisting them or not being in subjugation to them it's the wrath of the authorities carrying out the wrath of god on the wrongdoer in instances where the wrongdoer is in fact the wrongdoer <laughs> like you know yes and, yeah and, and and so uh, yeah so this would be a case of like i agree with the interpretation they're going for and that i think paul does have the wrath of god in mind as well as like you know it's the authorities carrying out the wrath of god right yes but that's way too much interpretation in my translation <laughs> yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, just leave it I like let, them, let people but... interpret it <laughs> right yeah. yeah sometimes you see these things man the esv has betrayed me uh usually it's the niv <laughs> that betrays me but uh, right but i just think this is bad you don't i don't think you need to do this and, and it's both both verses four and five by the way both of them don't say god's wrath they just say wrath and uh you know uh, oh i missed the one in verse four okay it's yeah, the yeah, same yeah. it's the same deal yeah and both okay. of them it just says wrath uh i just double checked that um it's sure. like yeah. So it says, I mean, you know, ESV, verse four is for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath, wrath. on the yeah. wrongdoer. An avenger for wrath. Yeah, I, I can't. There's some details in the Greek. It doesn't all translate um, 
word for word in the English there. I don't know what carries okay. out is, for example. Um, but the point being, God's wrath is not the phrase. It's just wrath. Um, right. So, you know, I still love you, ESV, but uh, this might be one to fix yeah. uh, in your but constant you, you, revisions. Yes, but uh, you led me astray, ESV. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, right. So, so, so that's the first one of avoiding wrath, avoiding anger. So it's like in the first case of, of being subjugation to the, the rulers, you know, because they're powerful and you don't want powerful people mad at you, you, you know, it, just in one case. And second of all, because like, they're also carrying out God's wrath on wrongdoers. And so if you're doing wrong, like they're going to punish you for it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's better not to resist, uh, in, in, in that sense, because you don't want powerful people angry at you, you know, basically don't poke the bear is, you know, kind of the idea here. Um, and then the other one is, you know, but also for the sake of conscience. Um, and here is, I, 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 I think kind of looping in the, it's bringing in the moral idea again, that it's, it is, it's good to be in subjugation to rulers is, you know, I mean, that, that's basically what the text is saying. How does that sit with you, Jeremy? It sits well. I like okay. where we're at. Great. Yep. So I, so I have a, I have a question. So having kind of settled the the exegetical question of you know let's just go through the test and text and see what it says i have some questions for you um and then it sounds like you also have some topics you want to talk about too so the question that i have for you is i want to bring back the lens that we were using oh oh well actually i would say it's time for the <laughs> other meat <laughs> thank you thank you uh, <laughs> so in in our previous episode previous our first episode in this um series we kind of brought this like lens for how we can think about authority structures you know husbands and wives fathers and children slaves and masters um where it's this notion that like authority is something that is derived um and and we get all of these really interesting passages particularly in paul where where he does these things of husbands do this things wives do that thing and and it's it's always these asymmetric commands that we get um you know like fathers don't exasperate your children you know and, and children obey your your parents and so it's like the command is asymmetric that the the one in authority doesn't get the same commands as the one who's not in authority um and, and so the question that i have for you is in this situation um Paul is using the same idea of derived authority. So this is an authority structure that we have here of rulers and the people who are being ruled. But, and, and we get a bunch of commands to us as the people who are being ruled. But we don't get any commands that Paul is giving to the actual ruler in this case. And so my, my question is, maybe as an exercise, you know, let's, like, if if Paul was writing this in the same form as a, husbands do this wives do this format you know we we have the the you know quote unquote the commands to the wives in this whole section of these five verses here but what are the commands to the ruler you know that are kind of implicit in this this section here does my question make sense totally yeah i love it um and i think the reason why paul doesn't include that here is because he's not writing this letter to any of such people yeah, um, yeah like caesar was not part of the church in rome at this period right i mean you might have had a centurion or something i mean you do you do see examples of of prominent rulers um like centurions and stuff uh, embracing the faith uh I, that's not quite the same that's actually not quite the same thing though even a centurion who might have some military prowess is not is not like uh, a provincial ruler uh right 
much less Caesar. So, so I think that's probably the reason you don't see uh, this kind of stuff there. Um, and and I, I would say, like, I think it is embedded in the passage, though. Uh, don't be a terror to good conduct. Be a terror to bad conduct. I think that's exactly, like, again, and that's what I mean by it when I say the generally slash the ideal, right? Yeah. I, I, even though it's not probably the main thing Paul is thinking when he wrote that, I do think it does serve as an ideal, right? That's the yeah. whole point. You are supposed to terrorize evildoers, meaning judicial punishment right um and you are supposed to uh reward in some sense the good um which i don't think necessarily has to mean you give a key to the city to every person who helps an old lady across the street i just think it means that that you allow the structure to exist which provides for human flourishing um and provides baked in rewards we might say uh to those who do good um, so, for example, not burdening families who want to have children. That'd be a great, a really great way to reward those who, who do good. So I think it's embedded there uh, in the passage. But I would also just say scripture is replete with examples of wickedness and what it looks like to terrorize good conduct if you're a ruler, particularly in the Old Testament. So even though Paul doesn't address the rulers like he does wives children and masters or uh, wives uh, children and slaves rather um i think there's a huge context to paul's thinking and the thinking of any christian who knows the old testament here you know and and we reference the the story of uh, ahab and jezebel and the vineyard of naboth right uh when we did our first part of this series and that's a good Mm -hmm. example of like taking people's property you might be able to get away with that if you're a ruler, but that's wickedness, right? <laughs> like, yeah. um, that's something not to do. Uh, being, you know, in the same way that a father could exasperate his children, you could exasperate your subjects with heavy burdensome taxes. Um, you could destroy people's life savings by inflating the heck out of the currency and, you know, destroy the elderly and what they've saved up for, right? Uh, you could, etc. Um, we could go down a laundry list of grievances I might may or may not have, uh, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, the point being, yeah, uh, terrorize evildoers. Don't be a terror to those who are doing good. Um, yeah, I guess I would say, I would say that leave people alone, let people do good things. And until they step out of line, which I'm defining here as like, you know, doing wickedness, not just not wearing a mask to the grocery store or whatever, um, when they step out of line, then punish them. Right. Right. And, and so this is, goes into what I, the topic I wanted to bring up this idea Mm -hmm. of anarcho tyranny, which is a phrase that's probably unfamiliar to, to everyone listening. Um, it's hopefully not, hopefully it becomes more well-known because it's a great term, uh, coined by a writer, Sam Francis, uh, I think in the nineties or the eighties, I can't, I can't remember. Uh, it's a few decades ago. Uh, he was a, a political, uh, writer and anarcho tyranny is this fascinating concept. And it might sound familiar to any of you who have been paying any attention to what's been going on in the last, uh, you know, 21 months since, uh, March, 2020. Uh, the concept is essentially that, um, you have an extremely powerful overweening state, uh, that terrorizes and tyrannizes its subjects by refusing to punish evil 
um, but vociferously punishing um, ordinary people who are just trying to live live life, right? So the anarcho part is allowing rampant looting and arson and violence to remain unchecked in the streets, telling the police to stand down. It's like, what the heck are they good for if they can't stop rioters, right? Um, th these kinds of things. That's the anarcho part. It's just anarchy um, in the sense of chaos is kind of you know what it means, refusing to punish evildoers. And then the, the tyranny part is like, people who want to run their private business, um, you know, being forced to comply with all sorts of absurd mandates. And then after just barely scraping by, a bunch of arsonists come and burn their building down. And nobody in the government is interested in finding who those people are and prosecuting them. But instead, some kid who defends himself against rioters and arsons, arsonists and looters gets put on the stand to defend himself, and I'm obviously referring to Kyle Rittenhouse here, right? Someone who's clearly acting in self-defense is on the stand being prosecuted for no reason, um, whereas his assailants, who were there to cause damage and who tried to kill him, um, you know, two, two of them he shot and killed, but the third one he only wounded, right? That guy's still alive. The, prosecut the, the prosecution in Wisconsin, in um, Kenosha, has not pressed any charges against that third guy who's still alive who was there causing damage they know who he is he's on camera doing evil things and they're not interested in in, in him right they're interested in this guy who defended himself so that's anarcho tyranny that's in a nutshell kyle rittenhouse the, the fact that he was in that situation that's anarcho tyranny um the best way to describe it and so so this is what i meant earlier when you were saying like you know uh all this stuff about like well, generally, rulers don't want chaos. It's like, well, um, in some cases, it's politically advantageous to cause chaos. Uh, they do this for a reason. Um, so there's there's my my idea that I've thrown out. I think it is a valid concept in political science, uh, in political science this anarcho-tyranny. Um, and I think we're living in it right now, in, at least when it comes to the cities of America. Um Although I guess Kenosha is not some huge city, right? Uh, <laughs> but you also see it in things like, um, you know, people who were uh, at the riots on January 6th uh, at the Capitol, right? Who were just there, like they entered the Capitol building, but they didn't like attack anybody. They weren't violent. They didn't, um, some people there were violent, but there were some people there who just kind of entered the Capitol building and loitered, right? And those people were like, there was a massive campaign to hunt these people down and find out who they were and throw them in prison, you know, just for loitering in the Capitol, which even if it is a crime, it's not really like evil, you know? Um, and, and so there's been this massive campaign to root these people out and, and punish them and do make these political show trials of them. Um, and it's like, meanwhile, we have like so much footage of these riots last summer and almost none of these people who were burning down buildings and kicking old men in the face until they bleed, like all this absurd stuff. We have tons of video footage of it. Zero effort whatsoever to bring these people to justice. <laughs> you know, it's like there's there's no, none of it. There's, there's no no efforts whatsoever. So um so anarcho-tyranny is a real thing right now. And I think it does present a really difficult question when it comes to how should we as Christians handle it when the government clearly is a terror to good conduct and not 
a terror to bad conduct. It's the exact opposite of what Paul says uh, rulers are slash ought to be. What do we do in that situation? Does some form of vigilantism become okay? Like, I don't actually know what to think about this, right? Um, I know I'm kind of rambling here, and I do want you to to, to jump in here. But th- for example, uh, there's another uh, another thing that's been on my mind lately is like how lightly our government punishes pedophiles, um, which scripturally the death penalty clearly because rape gets the death penalty, mm-hmm. um, and pedophilia is an especially egregious form of rape. Uh, so like okay, I just read in the news today that Josh Duggar was convicted of some dis- really, really disgusting things. I won't talk about what they are, but but it, pedophilia, essentially. And he got like 19 years in prison. And I just read that and I'm like, why? Kill him. <laughs> like, what are you, what are we doing here? Why? <laughs> I just think it's absurd. Like, um, you know. It's I, like, I, like <laughs> not even life. Like. Well, he's not safe to ever be around in society again with what he did. Um, and and by the way, one of the people Kyle Rittenhouse shot was a pedophile. Why was he on the streets? Why was he not executed? This is absurd. Like, or, and even if you're, you know, if you're against the death penalty, okay, why is he not in prison for life? Okay. Obviously we've made our position on the death penalty clear on this podcast, but if you, if you don't go for that, okay, fine. Why is he on the streets? Somebody who would harm children in that way is not a safe individual to ever have um, just roaming the streets ever again, uh, you know, and um, I don't know, especially when it's these, this egregious thing. It's not like, I don't know. It, yeah, it's not like a it's not like um, some some much more mild sexual offense, I guess, is my point. It's like a, a really, really serious thing with like, you know, young children Um and so I, I, it's been on my heart lately and I've just been burdened. Like, what the heck are we doing? Why is this allowed to, uh, this is such a miscarriage of justice and it's rule. It's anarcho tyranny is what it is. <laughs> so, it, okay. I've ranted long enough. Uh, please. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, so the, 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 the thing that comes to mind about this is, so I'm going to, I'm going to make a little bit of a pitch here. And I'm I'm curious about your thoughts, uh, and that is that um, <clears throat> if it is uh, if we understand God's wrath to be um, it, in in this context some kind of like temporal punishment that's like rendered to wrongdoers in that case, and then I'll like also loop in that. Uh, um, well, actually, well, maybe, let me circle back first and say I, I think I totally agree with you about uh, the, the the question that I started asking of like what what are the implicit commands to rulers in this case? And it, it, I mean, I think you're right. The implicit command is is exactly do that thing of you know re, you know reward good and be a terror to evil, um, and that when you have a ruler who is not doing that thing, then they are the wrongdoer in in this case and so i guess my my question is what does it then look like for the wrath of god to be brought against this particular ruler 
Whew, that's a good a good way to turn it around, I think. Um, and, because it, well, the well, Protestant it, reformers dealt with this, right? Th that's why they developed the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, which is not so much a doctrine, even though it's called that, as it is a political theory of how Christians ought to operate um, in their own context, which is different than ours. And, right. and their idea was basically, well, a lesser ruler can oppose the one that's higher up on behalf of the lesser ruler's subjects. And, and, and because that lesser ruler is supposed to keep order is, you know, is supposed to reward good and punish evil. So in, in order to do that, a lesser ruler might have to oppose one that's higher up. And that actually is the kind of that idea is sort of what America was founded on, like the 10th Amendment whole thing. I mean, we don't follow mm -hmm. that anymore, um, right. but we could, like right. Ron DeSantis is kind of doing it uh, <laughs> over in Florida. Like, um, mm -hmm. you can't just say, forget you guys, um, we're going to not do that here. Or if you don't like Ron DeSantis, I mean, that's also exactly what like Colorado and Washington have done with their laws around marijuana use. You know, they basically mm -hmm. just told the Fed to stuff it and like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, well, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a good principle because it, it it keeps things away from pure vigilantism, but it also allows resistance um, in cases where it's where it's justified, you know. Yes. And 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 I think that that what works about that is it is working inside of the authority system that, again, Paul tells us God has instituted and so i'd say you know it's incumbent upon the lesser rulers who have also been appointed by god to basically not neglect their responsibility even if the people in higher authority than them are you know uh, uh what what not neglecting but are are you know uh, uh there's a fancy word for it that's not coming to me right now uh, but 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 it basically if they're violating their responsibilities then uh, you know, like that, that doesn't get you out. Like, like you're, you're not off the hook. It's still up to you to do uh, to, to dispense your responsibility well before God basically is the, the maybe what I was building to right there. Mm, yeah. Well, I think there's, there's gotta be a gray area there too. And I think there's definitely something here to, to be said for the point we've already made in this series, which is that the Bible doesn't prescribe any one form of political arrangement right. and a lot of this has to be decided and figured out using christian principles and biblical you know um data we might say mm -hmm. uh, to respond to the situations around us which is what martin luther and the rest of the reformers did when they developed the idea of the lesser magistrate it's what christians did when they just you know figured out how to handle persecuting governing authorities in rome all the way back in the day um, mm -hmm. and it's what happened when, you know, not all of the, uh, revolutionaries were Christians, but many were, uh, in the American revolution. And, uh, and it's up to us to figure, like, it really is. It's up to us to figure out, like, this context is way different than those contexts. Like we have the internet now and that actually does substantially change things like, yeah. uh, the American revolutionaries and the Protestant reformers and stuff, they didn't deal with such things as um, massive 
mega corporate media outlets <laughs> that could like you know and twitter and face i mean like i mean politics is perception and information right so a lot of what's happening today is is specific to our era and so we have to figure out like what are we going to do how are we going to navigate the world we live in and there's not like an obvious answer to that but just like grabbing a gun and going and um <laughs> like opposing the ungodly state you're just going to get killed right and that's why i think there's <laughs> there has to be some principle of like you don't just rush out there and and um and attack uh you know joe biden or whatever you know um there yeah. has to be some understanding of like uh keeping things to the wrath of god and uh allowing the the wheels of history to turn if a ruler is truly evil they won't last forever eventually a people will rise up and overturn that ruler and that's in god's providence and guess what whoever replaces that ruler was appointed by god <laughs> yep. to, to do exactly that so <laughs> i don't know yeah um well and and and, and there's actually some things here that I, i'd like to talk about too because I, I think there are some encouragements to us as Christians for how we can live in a a society that that um, like is evil, <laughs> you know, where and, and and what we should be doing. And and so I have two maybe encouragements uh, for us to to sit with here. Um, I'm not sure if this is quite the milk, uh, not solid food or not, but. Um, uh, no, no, no. Sorry, we're already in the other meet for application and, and discussion here, so we're we're, we're good to go. Um, so the, the the first encouragement that I'd say is, and this is the check against you know libertarian Jonathan right here, uh, and that is that I I think one of the points that Paul is making here is that uh, like resisting rulers is. Um, uh, like something that you'll you'll get punished for, and even if the ruler's bad, that doesn't mean you're not going to get punished for resisting them. And you know, so so that it's like it it may still just be a terrible idea, even if you don't like what the ruler's doing and the ruler is unjust. Like that ruler's still appointed by God, and they still have this power. And so, and and, and part of that I would say is in understanding that God has his purposes in the rulers that he has appointed. And, and so for that is that we, I, what I would say is that we shouldn't as Christians think ourselves like above persecution um, or above being mistreated or wronged by people. You know, this is the beloved avenge not yourselves, but you know, uh, uh, you know, leave it to the wrath of God or, you know, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That just because we're being mistreated, just because, you know, our, the way that we would like things or prefer things is not what's happening. Or even if like outright evil is being done against us, it's, we're not entitled to not having that persecution or we're not entitled to be being treated well by authority figures. Um, and Even Christ, who didn't deserve it at all, didn't consider himself above the cross. Yeah. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, no, no, totally. And and so part of that is, like, I think on the first case, we should just be encouraged that I, I think there's a lot as Christians that we should just bear that 
I mean, you know, if you're if we're being persecuted, if we're being mistreated, I, like I think there's a lot to just being mistreated. Um, and and for me, this is the, like this one's really hard to swallow because, again, libertarian Jonathan is like, oh, no, what this what this state is doing is wrong. What this state is doing is evil. Like, you know, I you know, what's in my heart is I want to resist that. Like, I want to, you know, like, oh, I don't want, you know, any piece of this. But, you, you know, like my my heart doesn't say like, well, I should just, you know, accept being mistreated. Um, but I think that that's a pretty big encouragement that Paul is giving to us of, you know, God, like God's wrath is something that will be brought against wrongdoing. And so if wrongdoing is being done against you, like God's going to handle that. Um, and, you know, maybe you should just be persecuted, like is, you know, I, I, I think one of the conclusions that we can draw from this. How does that sit with you, Jeremy? I agree. And I think uh, one point of application here that I'll just throw in real quick that uh, speaks to me, I think, is also that, like, we're not supposed to be scoff laws, you know, which is like a great word that I love <laughs> using whenever I, whenever oh, I, that's it's perfect. so good, scoff law, you know, we're not supposed to be scoff laws, right? So I think, I think there's, there's an element where it's like, look, I could go on and on about theory about why it's stupid that the government builds the roads, right? But it's also kind of stupid to like, argue with a police officer who pulls you over for going 10 over right even if the speed yeah. limit is dumb and it shouldn't be the speed limit it is it, there's definitely something like there's better hills to die on you know yeah. um so uh, there's definitely a, a triumphalist kind of um uh you know i i hate the state kind of thing which which is not I think a Christian approach and it's, it's rife within libertarianism and conservatism. Um, I think, and, and the people who, who have that attitude are often like a hundred percent right about the theory of something like, yeah, your taxes are so stupid. Your taxes, if you live in America, your taxes are really stupid, like, and evil and wicked. Right. But I think, and we're going to get into, this is a good bridge to the next episode. We're going to talk about taxation. Uh, those of you who know Romans 13 well might wonder why we stopped at verse 5 when the next verse talks about taxes. It's next episode. We're, yeah, we're, we're doing it next episode. <laughs> um, but it's like, okay, yeah, but ultimately all the money you have, you have it because God gave it to you, right? It's not something yeah. you take with you into heaven, right? Into the... Uh, heavenly dwellings with all the treasures there so why not allow yourself to be defrauded rather than take up the sword and potentially lead to your own death and the death of many other innocent people yeah. over just money right <laughs> so it's kind of like even though money is huge it's a dumb hill to die on i think uh, now, can it become, okay, like, you know, none of this is objective and true in every circumstance. If the government starts taking 80% of your income, you should definitely take up the sword <laughs> because you, you'll be <laughs> starving. What's, what's the cutoff, Jeremy? What percentage <laughs> should we take up the sword? <laughs> like, I don't know. And even in that case, like, if you're a multi-billionaire, even though it's unjust, you can still eat, right? So yeah. possibly, you know, not, but obviously if it's the sort of thing where where 
you're being starved out by your government soviet style then then that would be an appropriate time to revolt and you know start a civil war and a lot of people would die it might be necessary to to keep the government from killing all the subjects anyways you know so that's what i mean by this is complicated um yeah but you know i, I generally speaking to to just fly off the handle and and start attacking uh the irs agent who shows up at your house and wonders why you haven't paid your taxes probably not the most christian approach it's not very wise you'll probably just get thrown in jail (laughs) and if you shoot that irs agent okay great now there's a, a a son and a wife and you know who who are now going to bed without their father and their husband right some good you've done i think that's also jesus's point when he rebukes peter for cutting off the ear of the person who's you know gonna arrest him it's just like cool you cut off his ear there's like a bunch of soldiers here like what do you think you're gonna do (laughs) what what was it what was your follow-up peter like right yeah this is just folly you're just mad and causing damage with no end goal right you're not yeah actually accomplishing anything so and then of course jesus Mm -hmm. points out that i could send down legions of angels and defend myself if i wanted to who are you peter um yeah anyway so that's just kind of my spiel on like uh don't die on dumb hills uh yeah yeah literally or metaphorically (laughs) yes and 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 um so there there's a um a piece to that of um uh or the, the the like the notion of just war theory um is that like you know wars? Uh, uh, um, is this this is Augustine who or Augustine? How are you supposed to say his name? I've heard it both ways. Potato, potato. Okay, sure. Um, I'll I'll switch back and forth. Um, uh, so uh, Augustine's just war theory, right? That it's you know wars can't be just unless they're uh, I, I forget all of the pieces to them, but it's like you know it needs to be defensive. Um, you have to be and, able to win realistically. Yes, that's a and, key and, one. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's the important piece that it's like if if you fighting this war is just going to like have you and all of your, you know, neighbors and friends and, you know, all of the men die, then it's like, it's not a just war. Like, it doesn't matter if you were like, like, it doesn't matter if the, the other side started it and you were, you would have been justified in like trying to defend yourself. The fact that you would all lose and everybody would die makes it bad and you, you shouldn't do that. Um, and, and so I, I would sort of apply that, that I think there's a, a like a just resistance theory, uh, you know, that we can apply to it, that resisting authorities is like, well, it's if if it's um, uh, uh, if it's a if it's a righteous thing that the authorities are, are enacting, then it's not just to resist it, you know, but and by token is like and if resi- even if it's a wrong thing, if by resisting it, the only thing that's going to happen is like, you know, you know you're going to get like thrown in prison and now like you know who's going to take care of your wife or you know or you're going to get shot and who's going to take care of your like if if that's the only thing that's going to happen as a result of it then again that's not that's not just resistance that's just dumb it's unwise and in such an egregious way as to be sinful yeah and so i think that maybe that's the the other side of it is if is there is this uh, i maybe argue just resistance theory um where Like, I think there are situations in which, in a strict sense, resisting authority is something that is, like, just and right. Maybe not in the way that Paul is meaning it in verse 2, but in, you know, maybe a broader sense of what resisting authorities looks like. Um, And if you disagree with me, then, I mean, like, what, was the American Revolution, like, just, like, total evil? I I, I mean, I I, I used to think that, believe it or not. Oh, interesting. At one point, yeah. When I was like 18. 
Yeah, so I, I definitely so uh, so you, but you don't think that anymore. Uh, no, I think it was based. <laughs> <That's> okay, <laughs> very nice. Well, okay, I guess I would say the majority of our audience probably does not think that the American Revolution was like abject evil, and so I would say welcome to my position, and that is that it is okay sometimes to quote resist authorities. Um, <laughs> right. Well, and that actually kind of was in some ways just a tax revolt. <laughs> That's right. the funny. Well, but I mean, there was more. So, there well, was more to it than that. Yeah, it does um, kind of but, undercut your point, you know. <laughs> that's why I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's the libertarian in me conflicting with the, this passage. I'm like, oh, they <laughs> they killed a bunch of British people because they were mad about taxes. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, <laughs> I can't help it. Like I was born born and raised here in America. It's it's the <laughs> <laughs> sure sure, but. Um, yes, but I, but I think that like one of the pieces with the American revolution is it wasn't going to, it wasn't the case that like, oh no, they're just like the colonies are going to get totally wiped out and destroyed. And like, it's not like that was a foregone conclusion. Um, and I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, we are an independent nation now, I think speaks to the fact that it was maybe it might've been a long shot, but it's like not impossible that things turned out the way that they did. And so as a result, it's not like, like, I would say on the other side, if it was the case that like, you know, Great Britain was just always going to totally crush the, you know, the colonies if they revolted or something like that, then I would say it would be wrong for the colonies to revolt. Uh, And so that that's sort of the piece that I'm trying to to land in as the example for my uh, uh, proposed just resistance theory. Hmm. I think I agree. Um. And I would also add as an addendum that uh, because I mentioned like the the coronavirus restrictions at the outset of this uh, very long episode, we could tie a little bow on it and, and just say like, yeah, if someone's holding a gun to my head, I'll probably put the mask on. You know, um, I have a son. Yeah, <laughs> right? I have a wife. I have a mom and a dad and brothers and, you know, people who care about me. Right. But the reality is the state doesn't have the resources to actually pursue its um, tyrannical mandates. So the risk is pretty low of me rebelling against that, right? And even if they were to come down on me, it would be a fine. And I would pay the fine to avoid... You would incur the judgment and you would bear it. (laughs) I would incur the judgment of the God-appointed authority and I would come home and say things that on a bad day would not be fully in line with Paul's restrictions on speech, which we've had a podcast episode about. (laughs) And I would pay the dang fine. (laughs) And I would say, I'm still not wearing my mask tomorrow. (laughs) And you would pay it the next day too. (laughs) I would pay it the next day too. (laughs) <laughs> so i think i think that can this also goes back to my my silly example of like the carton of eggs on your head right it's like it's just a it's just pointless and dumb you know um but if someone's holding a gun to my head i'll probably do it <laughs> until i can amass a sort of resistance you know yeah um but but uh, I, I guess that's the way i would understand it and so i personally see it as if you want to speed in a speeding zone because you think the speed limit's kind of dumb and you're just, you know, evaluating yourself and you're like, why is the speed limit so arbitrarily low here? I don't see what's dangerous about it. And in all your conscience, you, you know, 
think it's okay morally to go faster. I don't think it's sinful to do that. I do think it's sinful if you get pulled over to give the officer the hardest time of their life about it or to refuse to pay your fine because that's dying on a stupid hill, if that makes sense. That's how I would understand this. Like You don't have to obey every little thing the government says, um, but you should be conscious if you're doing it, like you might incur judgment, right? And you, you got to be conscious of that and wise, um, you know? So, so I guess that's my way of saying that it's like, I don't know, I've heard people say it's like a sin to drive over the speed limit. And it's like, well, they won't even stop you if, unless you're going five over. And I don't actually think it's a sin to go six over necessarily. Um, but if you get pulled over, you get pulled over. That's the risk you take, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know. That's the way I would parse it out. Yeah, Interesting. All right, this is a super long episode, dude. I mean, I knew it, I knew it was going to be <laughs> such yeah, a big yeah, for passage. Sure. Well, I, I think maybe we can we can wrap up there for for this uh, uh, time. We we gave a little bit of a teaser at the end for for taxation, which we're going to get to in the next episode. We can uh, we can decide if taxation is in fact theft or not, um, and you know what a Christian response to taxation should be. Uh, maybe just to whet everybody's appetite for what what's coming in the future. You should be really mad about it. That's the. <laughs> <laughs> you should stage a revolt and throw tea into the harbor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely that one. That's the. That is the righteous action. <laughs> or should you just render unto Caesar, right? Like Jesus yeah. said. Uh oh. Stay tuned and find out. <laughs> well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.